History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. No hits, deep tracks only. Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten. We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories. I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. This is History's B-Side. Today's B-Sider is the first female president of the United States. You know, Matt, when we uh, set out on this historic podcast adventure, not that our podcast is in itself historic, but that we are... I think it's historic. <laughs> well, we're diving into some pretty historic people. Um, so when, when we started this with the idea, we kind of always figured, or at least I always figured, that we were going to become international sensations out of this. Wouldn't you agree? Of course. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> but unfortunately, um, we are American citizens. Not that that's unfortunate, of course. That's unfortunate? That's the, we're the greatest country in the world, as all good Americans would tell you. But it means that we're going to have a little bit of bias towards American history. So naturally, I had to pick, for my first topic, the first female president of the United States of America. Did you make that up? Oh, I didn't I make it up. I don't think we had one. Now, yeah, as most people listening to this would say, would tell you, we have never had a female president of the United States of America. But Matthew, I disagree. It's always big when you're bringing out the full name. We've never had a democratically Matthew. elected female president of the United States. But we have definitely had a woman who served as the chief executive of the United States of America. So we're going to talk about her today. All right. How much do you know about American presidents? Tell me everything. Uh, George Washington had fake teeth. I'm not sure what source they came from. Uh, he lied about it, possibly. Starting with number one uh, is a good Thomas one. Jefferson. Good, good place to go. So we're moving along. 44 more. <laughs> Tom, Thomas Jefferson grew wine and, and had slaves. Andrew Jackson was a dick-ish. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Is that a thing I can say? We'll figure it out down the road when we get that explicit label <laughs> on our first episode. So presidents, they're notable in their own right, but um, probably the lesser known would be their, their counterpart. You know, as many, would, many a man would tell you, behind every great man is an even better woman who's telling him what to do the whole way that's along. Bruce Al- that's Bruce Almighty. Oh, that's Bruce Almighty? <laughs> I mean, it's in Bruce Almighty. I don't know if that's the original quote. Well, I, I didn't mean to steal that from Bruce Almighty. We don't plagiarize here. We're a historical podcast. Actually, you know what? I think Bruce Almighty was um, behind every great man is a woman shaking her head. So That's also <laughs> true. As the married one between the two of us. <laughs> I, you know, if it wasn't so late, my You're wife would be downstairs. behind me shaking her head right now. We should definitely have like a video cast where she does that. <laughs> Subscribe to our Patreon and at the premium level, you can watch my <laughs> wife shake her head disappointed <laughs> behind me. And I can't wait for her to listen to this. <laughs> so getting back to our presidential wives, um, you know, not all of our 45 presidents to date have been married. Um, but to make up for it, several of our presidents have had multiple wives, uh, some, t- some multiple wives while they were 
the incumbent president. Um, the duty of the wife of the president thus far could also serve a role if we do have an elected female president would be her husband. Um, the role is typically referred to as the first lady of the United States of America. Now, the first lady. Do you know? Do you know where that the the term comes from, or why they chose first lady? Is it? Uh, well, the first lady isn't technically an outlined position in the Constitution, and you, you'll hear that referred to a lot in a lot of positions of authority, um, university presidents, or uh, even mayors or governors. We hear our governor referred to as the first lady of our state, um, or our governor's wife is referred hmm. to as the first lady of our state. And actually, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I I can't recall right now which of our presidential wives was the first one referred to as the first lady, first first lady by term. But uh, Martha Washington, the wife of George Washington, our first president, was often referred to as Lady Washington. She was not called hmm. first lady in title, but she was often referred to as Lady Washington as she was the uh, president's wife. Uh, so the term sort of stems from that, but... Typically, um, when you're getting through the president and his family, uh, you often hear any of his children referred to as the first family. Uh, his wife is the first lady. And when you get into the, the vice president of his family, the vice president's wife would be the second lady of the United States of America, uh, second family, things like that. So you'll see that in more places than gotcha. just president, executive government. But that's where we're, the, the most notable first lady in our society is typically the wife or the spouse sure. of the president. Um, Actually, for the first dude. Well, notably, <laughs> I was just having this conversation about um, what we would refer to that position as. And in our current time of recording, we have our first ever vice president elect who is a woman. Hmm. So we were discussing um, what would her husband be referred to as. Obviously, he's not going to be first because she's the vice president or she's the vice president elect. So her husband will be referred to as the second gentleman. I was. I thought it would be gentlemen. It had to be something like that, but it makes sense, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. The first so. sir. <laughs> so one day when we do have a democratically elected first female president of the United States, we will have a, well, assuming she's married to a man, uh, we will have a first gentleman serving in the role of what has previously always <laughs> been held to as <laughs> the first lady of the United States. Uh, as I mentioned, the role is not specifically outlined in the Constitution, but the first lady does have a full executive office and staff. Uh, the position obviously is not an elected position. And it's also not paid. It's the only unpaid position in the office of the first lady. Interesting. Notably, the two presidents who most argued in favor of the first lady being a paid position was um, Ronald Reagan was the first one. And more recently, Barack Obama were the two presidents that we've had that mm. really advocated on the fact of the first lady being a paid position in the White House staff. I mean, it's kind of wild. It's a huge amount of responsibility and work. Right. I mean, not that they don't get adequately compensated in book deals and, and publicity <laughs> and all that. But that's all post-presidency. You can't have those well, emoluments sure. I, yeah. while, their, uh, while their husband is the chief executive of the nation. But obviously, right. all of their, they, they don't necessarily need a salary or an income when all their needs are met full of staff. And, you know, you get all this travel and living arrangements. Air and, Force One. Yeah. <laughs> They're not spending a lot of money while they are um, living in the White House, at least not their own money. <laughs> uh, the duties of the First Lady um, are not specifically outlined, but typically she's always taken on the role of the hostess of the White House. We talk a lot about how 
The first lady is responsible for decorations, especially around the holidays, the Christmas decorations. Um, and several of our first ladies have taken on the role of uh, revamping the Rose Garden of the White House. In fact, the Rose Garden was planted by one of our former first ladies, Jackie Kennedy, or Jackie O. Um, that was one of her initiatives, was beautifying the White House, and playing the Rose Garden was a big part of that. Now, it's a very notable location for press conferences and big announcements and things like that. You see a lot of presidential involvement in and around the White, or the White House Rose Garden. Uh, she's responsible for management of the White House in general, uh, dealing with a lot of the White House staff. She also makes a lot of appearances at political campaigns and different political events and ceremonial occasions. She'll accompany the president overseas whenever he, sometimes just visiting military members or uh, involved with different treaties or different interactions with other foreign dignitaries. The, the first lady has really evolved to be a political position in and of itself, of course, complemented by her husband, who is the president, but it really has formed into its own position. Sure. Do you, do you think that when, when, if and when, I shouldn't say if, when we have our first, first gentleman, do you think that the roles would remain similar? I, I mean, I don't want to cross any lines, but like, I Please mean, it's a typically <laughs> historically feminine, right? Like, right. And that's what's interesting is that when you talk about the role of the White House hostess, it's kind of hard to see a first gentleman take on the role of organizing the Christmas decorations at the White House. And that's just coming from a male-dominated society and the fact that we've only ever had male presidents and female first ladies. It, it would be interesting to see when we have a... a elected female president, how does her husband or whatever gentleman or whoever she chooses to fill that first gentleman role, will the duties be the same? Is he going to be perceived as having more influence on her executive political decisions? Because we don't see that a lot now. You don't see a lot where the president consults his wife before he makes a big, I don't know, political agenda initiative should see house like of that. cards <laughs> that's a different show we're podcasting here we're not netflix <laughs> uh but the the first ladies themselves have taken on a lot of their own initiatives um most recently especially the first ladies tend to have their own social causes that they really push as their own agenda and a lot of them have had some pretty catchy names over the years that's becoming more of a recent trend the first one that we know of as a you know, a, a name for her agenda was Nancy Reagan really was a big advocate of drug awareness with the just say no campaign. I mean, I remember that when we were, I mean, we're, we're definitely too young to have known the Reagan presidency, but um, I remember hearing just say no and having pencils and stuff on it when we were in elementary school. Like there was a lot of holdover just from the Reagan administration, yeah. even into when we were kids in that age and when her initiatives would have affected our, our lives. Um, but some of the more recent first ladies to memory, uh, Barbara and Laura Bush, um, obviously mother-in-law and both of them wives of former presidents, they were both very involved in childhood literacy, promoting that cause. Uh, Hillary Clinton was very big in reforming the healthcare system. Michelle Obama did a lot for military families and really put an initiative on childhood obesity. She titled her campaign, the Let's Move campaign, and our, at the time of recording, current First Lady Melania Trump has been overseeing her Be Best campaign, which addresses children who are affected by uh, cyberbullying. So First Ladies themselves have had a lot of influence and roles. 
um, for pushing their own agendas, typically just for the betterment of society. But they've also been seen in ways that they've promoted women's fashion and really set the trend for what women in America can kind of aspire to be. Yeah. So at, at times, as I mentioned, we've had presidents who have not had a wife or there's been times when a spouse has died while the president was still in office and things like that. And we've had some vacancies where the they've had to appoint someone to fill the role of the first lady or as of the White House hostess at the very least. Sure. Um, some notable times. Uh, we'll, we'll get to one later on, especially the, the woman that this episode is featured around actually was the second wife of her president during his presidency of her husband. But some recent examples would even just be when Bill Clinton was the president and his wife, Hillary, first lady, Hillary Clinton decided to run for Senate. She actually took a break or stepped down from being the first lady uh, towards the end of his presidency. And her daughter actually filled the role for her. Chelsea Clinton stepped in as the first lady fitting, I suppose, while her mother, Hillary ran her Senate campaign and really just for a couple months while uh, Hillary focused on her own campaign. And then once she won her campaign, she stepped back into the role as first lady. And she actually, from the time that she was sworn in as a senator, she served both as a senator and as the first lady for the last Damn. two, two and a half weeks of her husband's presidency. Uh, I mean, I guess that's not that long, but that's a lot of work. Yeah, and she's definitely one of the more you know impressive political women that we, we've heard about in our modern society. But there's been a lot of times over the years, um, even going way back to, say, President James Buchanan, he was our bachelor president. He was never married, um, but he would appoint... My guy. <laughs> he appointed his niece, actually. Was he on Tinder? <laughs> you know, there's... I don't know if this will be a future entry about um, some people in James Buchanan's life, but he's often referred to as our first gay president. Not that that mm. was ever actually official, but... You know, it was rumored or believed that he may have been bachelor by choice, shall we say. Um, and that that might be a future story about the uh, people in his life hey, that we, yeah. we touch on later on. But he actually appointed his niece because he didn't have a wife. His niece filled the role as the first lady. So typically when, it, when there is a gap in that position, whether it's because the wife has passed away or we have a president who's just not married... They'll appoint a family member or a close personal friend to fill that role as the White House hostess. Now, obviously, our our first ladies have been pretty prominent in our society. They've they've filled a big role um, as we've, you know, needed someone mm -hmm. to to kind of be that focal point of the White House, especially domestically. So, I thought this was interesting. Recently, our country decided to honor some of these first ladies by actually printing some of them on currency. So I don't know if you remember this. When we were younger, the, the U.S. Mint decided to put out uh, or put an initiative to have a dollar coin in the system. Uh, a lot of yeah. other countries, especially European listeners, would be familiar uh, that they have a dollar euro that's pretty common over there. And we've always just, for whatever reason, not been keen on having coin uh, in our pockets. Yeah. <laughs> so in an, effort to to, it now. <laughs> in an effort to start putting more dollar coins into society we introduced what was called the Sacagawea dollar. And I remember these being huge yeah. when we were little. I always thought they were the coolest thing. <laughs> and even... In popularity and size. They were like <laughs> the balloons. I mean, yeah, they were they were pretty big, but it was just, it was a gold coin. You're a kid with a gold coin and you just yeah. think that's cool. 
but it, it was surprising to me when I learned that um, they never actually took off real well. I think maybe uh, Sacagawea, we should explain, is uh, the, the Native American who kind of guided the Lewis and Clark expedition throughout the Western United yeah, States yeah. before they had become part of uh, the country. But the U.S. wanted to, you know, put some focus on our Native American population and wanted to um, give some respect to a female pioneer, essentially. Uh, but the, the coin itself never really reached its popularity, either for spending purposes or for Why do you think that purposes. is? Uh, it's hard to say. I, I mean, I would, I would guess that the biggest thing is that just Americans don't like carrying around coins. But I think part of their idea yeah. was that even if the coins aren't circulating, they still benefit the economy by collector's items. But if you only have one version of your dollar coin, how many are yeah. people are actually collecting it? So they moved on from this initiative um, to kind of introduce some other dollar coin ideas. And what they moved on to was presidents. As we've gone through this program, uh, the Presidential Dollar Coin Act was introduced in 2007. And what they did was put out a $1 coin every so often. Was, a new one was introduced with the president's face, former president's face on one side. And then the reverse sign was a sign of liberty or some kind of... Um, nod to a historical event that took place during their presidency. Um, obviously, they were introduced okay. as in, this, in the order that they took office, starting with George Washington and moving on from there. And the program continued up until 2016. Um, so we had nine good years of presidential dollar coins. And it, it really had... I had no knowledge of this. I've never... I, I mean, I've probably seen one of these coins, but I don't know that I remember... We still have that I mean, hang up I'd as keep Americans that we don't like Barack having Obama's coins face on it. <laughs> well, you haven't, <laughs> you haven't seen a dollar with Barack Obama's face on it. And here's why. It's actually against U.S. law to have a living person's face on currency, with one exception, oh. which we'll get to. <laughs> but the uh, so they've been introducing these presidential dollar coins uh, every so often, putting a new one in circulation up until 2016. And the reason they stopped the program, or really suspended is probably the better way to describe it, is because they ran out of deceased presidents. We got all the way up to uh, Ronald Reagan was the most recently printed uh, dollar presidential dollar hmm. coin because President Jimmy Carter was still alive, uh, George H.W. Bush was still alive, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama. And that's why it re it's going to begin again. Right. Okay. So up until 2016, we... We suspended the program. We had all of our deceased presidents had been printed on coins until the passing of George H.W. Bush uh, only a few years ago. And it was announced that his presidential dollar coin would be released in the year 2020, which is this year. Now, I've yet to see one, but I believe that that has been released in circulation already. And like I said, you don't see them too often. Uh, part of the reason is we just don't like carrying coins. As someone who spent a lot of time working in the restaurant industry, there's nothing more annoying than someone paying with a dollar coin because you have to I'm take it. Coming to your restaurant with a tender, bag of coins. But like our cash drops don't take them. Right. It's no like, one wants to what carry do you do with Yeah, it? like it, it's more gimmicky that someone will go to a bank and specifically ask for it. Usually collectors, but some people some people like them and some people think they're interesting. The same reason we have two dollar bills still. They're mm -hmm. unique. I was just about to say that. But they're really not useful as actual currency. Yeah. So getting back to our first ladies, in an effort to boost their notoriety and to give them their respect and their due, 
As part of this Presidential Dollar Coin Act, they also introduced the first spouse $10 coin. Now, it was titled the first spouse coin because up to this point, we have not had a female elected president, but someday we might, and she might have a male husband, which would make them the first spouse rather than first lady or first gentleman. So the first spouse coins were introduced, um, and they were to be distributed and debuted the same time that their counterpart, their husband's coin was released as well. So along with the George Washington dollar coin, we got the Martha Washington $10 coin. And I have never seen one of these. These have to be so much more rare and really just a collector's item. Yeah, it seems. I mean, I have never seen one. Um, but again, this is the first I'm hearing about them. Right. <laughs> but again, they were they were released with their with their spouses' coins, um, and there were times that we would have, you know, a a president whose wife died while he was in office and maybe got remarried. So there were times that we'd have two uh, spouse coins that would come out with the presidential dollar coin. They'd just be released. About the same time, um, but they would still have the, the first spouse or the first lady's face on the one side, um, and then some representation of a notable part of her achievements on the on the reverse side of it. Hmm. If we did have a bachelor president or certain presidents who just didn't have the first lady during their presidency, they would just have a second coin created that was representative of the president and some homage to liberty. Now, again, these coins were introduced up until 2016 when we just ran out of deceased presidents. (laughs) But um, because First Lady Barbara Bush passed away around the same time as her husband, her $10 coin was also released in 2020. Uh, It's just now making it into circulation because we've just passed the two-year mark of her husband's husband's passing. Now, like I said, there was one exception to the, the law that a living person could not appear on U.S. currency, and that is because the first spouse coin is to be released at the same time as their husband president's coin. So in the event that a, one of our five, how do we have five living presidents were to pass away two years after his passing, we would introduce his presidential dollar coin. But if his wife outlives him, she would get her first spouse coin introduced in that same year. So we have five living first ladies right now, and each of them has the opportunity to one day outlive their husband by two years and appear on American currency. And what's some more than others. <laughs> what's interesting about that is our current president and first lady have a pretty big age gap. Like you, not to suggest anything, of course, but it's very likely that she could be <laughs> the first, first, first lady to appear on a legal U.S. currency while she's still alive. Are you suggesting something? I'm not suggesting anything. I just thought it was an interesting and useful tidbit. Nice reflection. (laughs) So why don't we take a quick break here and then we'll get into our first female president of the United States of America. Oh no, Matt's gone British. Hello, good chaps. Liking the history, are you? Matt's promised to do the rest of this episode in this poorly represented British accent. Unless you go support the show on our website right now. Oh, bollocks. Got myself into a pickle. But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website, historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start. Though... 
please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly boneless episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more. We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags, stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards. You can suggest an episode topic, or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us. That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. So we've been talking about all of our first ladies in the United States, and I want to talk about one of them in particular. Edith Wilson was the second first lady to President Woodrow Wilson. Now, she was born Edith Bowling on October 15th, 1872 in Virginia. The Bowling family were one of the first settlers to the Virginia colony, and she was actually a direct descendant of Matoica, who we probably better know as Pocahontas. Edith was from a big family. She had she was the seventh of 11 children, um, and two of them died in infancy, as was the time, you know, not a lot of sure. good success rates in childbirth back then. Um, but li- also living in her house were all of her grandmothers, aunts, uncles, cousins, uh, it was a big, big house, big family. Um, they were also, you know, being from the South, they were pretty staunch supporters of the Confederate States of America, really proud of their Southern heritage. And she was actually taught the post-Civil War narrative of the Lost Cause. Are you familiar with this? I'm not. So the Lost Cause, we don't necessarily hear it referred to by name uh, in today's society, but it's essentially the belief that slavery was just and moral because it brought economic prosperity to the region. Um, it's also the basis of a lot of the whole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's also the basis. Problems. It uh, has a lot to do with the whole states' rights thing that we hear a lot. I mean, now whenever yeah. you see people waving their Confederate flags and stuff, you hear a lot about Southern pride. And when people give the argument that the, the Civil War was about more than just slavery, it was about states' rights, and really it was just states' rights to own slavery, <laughs> to own slaves. Right, right, yeah. But that's probably another conversation that we could have down the road. But It's definitely a longer other conversation. <laughs> yeah, but the Bowling family, they were certainly not immune to this ideology. They, they justified slave ownership to themselves, they, believing that uh, the persons that they owned were content with their lives as slaves because... That's just all they knew, and they had little desire for freedom. There's probably few... Well, let's talk about you and me for a second. You know, the basis of our friendship is pretty much just that we disagree on a lot of things, and it gives us a lot of good conversation fodder. I think there's probably... pretty true. There's probably a few moral standpoints that we can set as pinnacles of what the History's B-Side podcast believes in. Number one... Slavery is bad. Number two, Nazis are bad. No, I'm actually I'm pretty okay with Nazis. Good, because that's a later topic. I'm I kidding. Can't wait to discuss. I'm it with kidding. You. <laughs> oh, great! I can't wait to hear you. You have a good Nazi, Nazi in your playbook. Standpoint. Hitler I, was a great speaker. He was I very refer charismatic. To him as a good Nazi, but like he was a Nazi. He was an effective Nazi. He was the <laughs> Nazi. 
the there's a there's a the Nazi other than Hitler. Yes, but that's Damn, a later talking guy. point. In addition to Nazis, catch up later for the Nazi. Slavery is bad, indeed. Quite. Now I'm gonna now I'm gonna say but. This is not a defending Why? slavery. Why? But. Oh my god. Slavery is bad. But that doesn't mean we need to hate everyone in our history because it was a part of the American story. I do. <laughs> to say that I'm kidding. <laughs> everyone in that era was fully faulty. Okay, it's probably true, but also we need to embrace part of our history because not they embracing had less to go on in, than in a we good do way, now. not embracing in a good way, but knowing that that's a part of our story and it's something that I felt we should address. Sure. Yeah, I mean you can't leave it out. That I think that's almost worse than Right. As we get into you know, the story of Edith it. Wilson, she's she's a pretty respectable person and someone that's worth knowing in history. But it's also worth knowing that this was a part of her upbringing and a part of where her family came from. Right. And understanding that that yeah. ideology is something that a lot of Americans of this time period were raised on. Yeah, I mean, if we're being honest, it's pretty hard to cover, as, as unfortunate as this is, it's pretty hard to cover any uh, pre, pre-turn of the century, pre-1900 American history without talking about somebody who was involved in or participated in or was complacent in or supported slavery. I mean, it's... And especially people of power and wealth at that time. Now, the Bullings family wasn't necessarily of wealth during her upbringing, but she they were one of the first settlers in the Virginia colony. Of course, they came from wealth until the Civil War took a lot of that away. So let's get into the Bullings family a little bit, or specifically with Edith. Um, she herself had very little formal education, and a lot of that comes from, like I said, the, the Bullings family sort of didn't have their wealth at this point. Edith herself was taught how to read and write at home. Now, her paternal grandmother, uh, Anne Wigington Bulling, that's a great name, played a large role in her education. Uh, Her grandmother was crippled by a spinal cord injury, and she was confined to bed. But Edith had the responsibility to wash her clothing, turn in her bed in at night, and look after her 26 canaries. How do you feel about people that have birds as pets? (laughs) I think they're all right. My dad had a bird. What kind of bird did your dad have? Now, was that pre-you, or did you also live with the bird? That was pre-me. My, but when I was born, my parents had a, a cat that bit me, and then they got rid of it. I guess Not the better that question, relevant, but... was your dad's bird before he met your mother? No. My mom actually, my mom and dad met because, because my of the dad bird? worked. Did he no, woo my dad worked. the bird? My dad worked for my mom at a pet store that my mom and my grandma owned. And so my mom was into birds. I mean, my mom was into all kinds of pets, but... <laughs> My family has a rich history. What can I say? <laughs> I'm just trying Even to as, the He has a bumper sticker. Your One of your parents seduces the other by saying, hey, come check out my pet bird. I mean, I don't know if that's exactly how it went, but... Now imagine if she had, or he had 26 of them. Ooh, that's like a whole... I don't know. What do you that's call a... mess. A, a what? That's a mess. A mess? Yeah. It is a mess. I, there's, a, there's a word for like a, a bird sanctuary. An aviary? I don't know what it is. Thank you. An aviary. <laughs> I kept thinking apiary, and I knew that was for bees. Apiary. Uh, something else. Apiary? Apiary. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Tangents. 
All right. So in exchange for caring for her 26 canaries, grandmother Bolin. Do you know, why she, sorry, do you know why she has had 26 canaries or like what? They I mean, make it's just a pets. hobby. They're very cuddly. Okay. I mean, it's not for their meat. They're canaries. <laughs> you could have little, little tiny fried chicken, fried canary leg wings, right? Seems a bit mean. Anyway. <laughs> in return for caring for her 26 canaries. <laughs> Grandmother Bowling oversaw Edith's education. She taught her how to read and write and speak a hybrid language of French and English. She also taught her how to make dresses and instilled in her a tendency to make quick judgments and hold strong opinions. Um, these personality traits would obviously become very important to Edith later on in her life, as we will get into. Uh, she had her first formal education when she was 15. Her father enrolled her into Martha, Martha Washington College in Abingdon, Virginia. Uh, she was a very undisciplined, ill-prepared student. She was pretty miserable. She said uh, the food Same. was very poor at the school. The rooms were very cold and the, didn't enjoy the curriculum there. Uh, she left after one semester. Couldn't hack it. <laughs> it's cold rooms. I feel like that pertains to a lot of uh, students in today's age. That they couldn't hack it or that the food is poorly prepared and the rooms are too cold? All of the above and leaving after one semester. That's fair. <laughs> Uh, two years later, she enrolled in Powell School for Girls, which was in Richmond, Virginia. She noted that her time at Powell's was one of the happiest of her life. But unfortunately for Edith, the school closed at the end of the year after the headmaster suffered an accident that cost him his leg. School closed because the headmaster lost his leg. What the hell? What, what was he doing? Oh, it was definitely a bear attack. Is that, is that, a, is that a real thing? He got attacked by a bear? Oh, I have no idea, but... How else do you lose your... Well, it could be, you know, like a fever or something. It is the Tree shredder. 1800s. Right there. <laughs> really could be... There's anything that could cause you to lose your leg in that time and age. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, everybody was legs left and right. It's falling off. But I like that they didn't hire a new headmaster. They just said... They just closed the school. Yeah, he can't cut it anymore. Just stumbling all over the place. Like, a, 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 and my dog is literally attacking me. I... He wants to be bite your leg off. I think he's upset about the canary thing. All right, let's move on. <laughs> uh, Edith married Norman Galt in 1896. Uh, Norman was a prominent jeweler in Washington, D.C., very wealthy, ran his own business. Uh, they actually had a son together in 1903, but he only lived a few days. It was a very difficult birth, left Edith unable to have future children. Unfortunately, even beyond that, Norman Galt passed away unexpectedly in 1908. Edith was left widowed and wealthy. So she hired someone to run oversee run his business. She paid off all his debts. She took the income that was left over and toured Europe. What a woman. I ain't saying she a gold digger. <laughs> no, she really did. It was a good marriage. He, he just, you know, died unexpectedly. And she used she that time, I guess, to, to cope, to travel and see the world. It wasn't as common or as easy back in that time, especially as a single woman. Yeah. Eventually, she returned to the United States, still living in Washington, D.C. at this time. She was on a hike with a friend and also Helen Bones, who was the first cousin of the current president, Woodrow Wilson. Bones was actually acting as the White House hostess, a.k.a. First Lady at the time. Um, she invited Edith to come back to the White House for tea, where she claimed she, quote, turned a corner and met my fate. There's my dog in the background. <laughs> Guess who's awake? So, Turned a corner and met my fate. Like I said, 
Helen Bones had been acting as the White House hostess at the time following the death of President Wilson's first wife, Ellen Wilson. I was reading an article about Edith by Carl Anthony on Biography.com where he wrote that for Wilson, it was love at first sight. Soon a presidential limousine hummed most nights outside of Edith's door, ready to slip her over for romantic suppers, while the next morning presidential messengers delivered suggestive love notes that flatteringly sought her apolitical Ooh. opinion on issues ranging from the trustworthiness of cabinet members to finessing diplomats in a, at, as a war in Europe began to rapidly expand. Now, obviously, yeah, this was uh, kind of an interesting situation to have, obviously, shortly after the president's wife passes away, he begins a courtship with a new woman. And, you know, as there's I mean, a lot it, going on in the country. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, I, the the first lady is sometimes, and the the first family is, is such an integral part of the election process and, and a, vi- a, a candidate's viability. It's, it's just interesting. I mean, how did the country feel, A, that he was, you know, remarrying, and, and also that even though they didn't know the full extent that, that she was in some way, at least influencing decisions. I mean, he was going over cabinet members and, and diplomats right. and with her. She passed his first wife passed away in 1915. Uh, Wilson himself was up for reelection only a year later. This was still in his first term. And it was something that his staff was well aware of. The article continues in saying if Edith was overwhelmed when the president insisted they get married, his political advisors were downright alarmed. Not only was Wilson entrusting this woman he'd only met three months earlier with classified information, he was up for re-election in 1916. Marrying Edith barely a year after his first wife's death, they feared, would lead to his defeat. So they crafted a plan. They would generate a series of fake love letters as if written from Wilson to a Mary Peck with whom he had conducted a real love affair of the heart and leak it to the press. They hoped this would humiliate Edith and she would flee. She was like, nah, I'm, I'm here for good. His own staff was conspiring to get her out of the picture, to scare her off, or just to make the president see that he shouldn't be marrying this woman he just met. Politics gonna politic. There were other un- It's just, I guess, rumors. it's good to know that this has been going on for forever and, and isn't, Oh, you know, nothing the whole is political... new in politics. <laughs> I do wonder if he would have, if a president today could have gotten away with the same sort of I guess clandestine meetings with the the amount of media coverage and internet and social media that we have today. Yeah, you have to think Not the twenty four I mean, hour news and social media definitely wouldn't help this situation. No, but I'm sure but, the president can still know, get away with a lot of things that you know the public eye doesn't get to see. He sure can. Regarding this situation, there were other rumors that suggested Wilson had cheated on his first wife with Edith, or that the two conspired together to have Ellen Wilson murdered. So that they could be together. <laughs> but reg- That's a hell of a love this, story right there. Right. Despite all this, they got married on December 18th, 1915. And Wilson still went on to win his re-election. Of course, this eventually led to the U.S. entering the First World War in April of 1917. Did him winning the re-election lead to the war? Or, or just the U.S.'s entrance into it? Uh, the, the no. Latter, I mean, the World War One, the U.S. was not a part of initially... Um, it's similar to obviously the more notable entrance to World War II. They they were kind of sure. pulled into it just under an, uh, <laughs> a well a general policy of always establishing get, world peace and maintaining order. Always getting dragged into these conflicts. You know we we don't start anything we finish them. America. There you go. 
to be fair, and we should do an episode on this, the Russians technically finished most of World War II. We just took the credit for it. That's the American I mean, we way. walked <laughs> damn straight. Walk in on the ninth round, knock the opponent out, and just put the hands up. <laughs> Woo! So, upon their marriage, she became the first lady, and being the first lady during World War One, she took on the responsibility of leading some domestic initiative to support the war effort. She proposed ideas and took them on herself and pushed them onto the public to observe gasless Sundays, meatless Mondays, and wheatless Wednesdays. All of these, obviously, to preserve resources that would be needed for the military effort. She also had sheep graze the White House lawn to conserve manpower <laughs> and then auctioned off their wool to raise funds for the American Red Cross. That's creative. Yeah. And I, I mean, laughed. maybe it wasn't for that time, but... I, that... Well, you know... In, Can you imagine in, today? Well, in today, there's a, there's a meme that you see. Well, not really a meme, but a funny picture that's turned into a meme of the president directing some young kid while he was cutting the White House lawn because he just thought... Like the kid aspired to it and thought it would be a great thing to do, something he wanted to do, and wrote letters to the president, and eventually they let him cut the grass. I would have done it as a kid. I would rather see sheep out there. I mean, come on. I mean, I would rather see sheep out there for sure. I'm just saying, I enjoy cutting grass, and if I could have cut the White House lawn, that would have been a cool resume builder, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, having the sheep do it was interesting. Obviously, raising some funds to support the Red Cross as well. She definitely was committed to her role of, you know, getting the public on board to support the war effort, which is a role that the First Lady often fulfilled. Um, she continued, as the war concluded, uh, she accompanied her husband to go sign the Treaty of Versailles in Paris. This made her the first First Lady to travel to Europe during her incumbency. And actually, her presence among the female royalty in Europe at different events or major Major world history moments like this really helped cement America's status as a world power and put them on equal footing with the other countries. So, I mean, does that imply that the other countries had already had women in power and women going to these sorts of, of meetings and Well, you have to remember political that affairs? The, the American democracy was kind of a unique situation. Even at that time, we're now 100 and some years, 150 years into the American experiment. But democracy itself is still sort of a new concept. You, you have monarchies and stuff, and you, you see queens and other female leaders in that realm, but you don't see a lot of female presidents and things like that in other countries yet. Obviously, we have some modern examples, but at this time, to see a woman female leader of America travel to be, represent the country in an event like this is pretty noteworthy. It's something that hasn't been seen before. Okay. So upon their return to the United States, uh, President Wilson began a cross-country campaign to persuade Congress to adopt his idea, which was a part of the Treaty of Versailles, to create a League of Nations. A lot of Americans are familiar with this concept, similar to what we know now as the United Nations, but this was Wilson's idea that he hoped could work together, a collection of all the countries in the world, work together to prevent future world wars, as it were, wars like this one. Unfortunately, Wilson faced much opposition from the Republican-controlled Senate at the time, refusing to work with him and to adopt his propositions. So he literally had to travel across the country to persuade senators and other politicians to get on board with his idea of creating this League of Nations. It was a very stressful thing. Travel was not then like it is now. And to be able to be traveling all over the, the world and then the country to 
really argue your ideas and try to convince people to back you on this was a lot of pressure and a lot of stress on the president. In fact, in October of 1919, he collapsed just under physical exhaustion and was rushed back to the White House where he suffered a massive stroke. Edith found her husband unconscious wow. in a bathroom and it was pretty apparent at that point that the president would no longer be able to fully function. She caused it. She did it. <laughs> no, it was the stress she of just wanted the to job. <laughs> now here's where she gets a little shady. <laughs> if the slavery thing didn't turn you off <laughs> the slavery didn't the beginning, do it. <laughs> here's where she really starts to uh, kick it into some shady business. Edith decided to continue the administration by conducting a disinformation campaign, misleading Congress and the public into believing that the president was only suffering from temporary exhaustion, which required extensive rest. She refused to allow her husband to resign and let Vice President Thomas Marshall assume responsibility of the presidency. Instead, she assigned herself to the role of presidential steward. She maintained that role for the final 17 months of her husband's presidency. Edith Jeez. and Edith alone decided who and which communications and matters of state were important enough to bring to the bedridden president. Now, in her own words, she said, quote, I studied every paper sent from the different secretaries or senators and tried to digest and present in tabloid form the things that, despite my vigilance, had to go to the president. I myself never made a single decision regarding this di disposition of public affairs. The only decision that was mine was what was important and what was not, and the very important decision of when to present matters to my husband. Bullcrap. You're telling me that you know the most important secrets and most important policy decisions of the country, and you are not influencing these at all. Instead, you're going to your just completely incapacitated husband and explaining them to him so he can make these big decisions with no influence of your own? No, she was completely, you know, just in and out. Perfect reporting. Yeah, Edith was making those decisions on her own. She was, she was conniving. She was clever. Very much so. She Edith knew what she was doing. Was far and wide the acting president of the United States of America for seventeen months. Yeah, for a, a year, year and a half. Almost a year and a half. <gasps> Edith became the sole communication link between the president and his cabinet. She required that they, send her, that they send her all pressing matters, memos, correspondence, questions, and requests. It was a pretty interesting way to run the country. I mean, it's genius, sort of, I guess. I mean, I guess she did, assuming it all went down as, as you've said, she got the opportunity and, and took it. You know, not every president collapses in a way that leaves him alive, but incapacitated, so... Yeah, but, I mean, it's I pretty mean, clear that he was conscious during this and at least functioning enough to trust her to make these decisions. But she she would not let him give up the presidency. She made sure that she was there to fill in that role and, you know, kindly help him out as needed. Of course, just little old me. I'm the dynamic was interesting, though. Husband. Cabinet officials had to wait in the hallway outside the presidential bedroom while the first lady conferred with her husband on important matters, waiting for her to return with, you know, his decisions. Oftentimes, he'd come back with papers with some scribbled notes in the margins of, in her own handwriting of what the president's thoughts were and things that he needed to implement into these policy decisions. And she had do some you, influence. Do you think, 
Go ahead. Do you think this would be possible today? Like, I mean, we talked about earlier with all of the the media coverage and the press White House, the, the White House press corps, and 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 just the availability of information. Do you think that this would be possible today? You know, it would be difficult. Um, obviously, just the amount of coverage and exposure of the president that we see, it would be very hard to conceal something like this. But at the same time, when it comes to matters of the president's health, they're pretty coy about what information they release. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the president is the most powerful man in the country. I don't see a lot of people who want that job willing to give up that power that quickly. Yeah. There hasn't been a lot of times where the president or the vice president took power while the president was still alive, you know, where the sure. president recognized himself as unable to handle the duties of the office. Even when something like this were to happen, you, a lot of times they would try to recover through it or govern the best they can. And it certainly helps when you have a wife who's willing to take on the duties of the job for you. Yeah. So uh, is it to be assumed that he was kind of okay with this? I mean, he, he went along with it. I mean, in some way he was. Yeah, I would say and... if he wasn't, he didn't object to it, or maybe he couldn't object to it couldn't that's nefarious (laughs) you know she had a lot of power too at one time she called and succeeded in calling for the dismissal of secretary of state robert lansing because he was holding cabinet meetings without the president or edith herself present at them on another occasion she refused to allow the u.s to accept the credentials of a british representative unless he would dismiss an aide who was known to have made demeaning comments about her and what's interesting about that story is that the representative had been coming to argue on behalf of Wilson's League of Nations to the U.S. Congress. Her rejection of this representative's credentials and his inability at that point to come speak on behalf of the president's ideas before Congress probably led to the overall failing of his own initiatives. It's almost like... That's petty. <laughs> I mean, oh, man. good for her, though, because she, she really stood up for herself in a way, in a time when most women couldn't, and she, she yeah. had an, enough self-respect to do so. Now, it arguably got in the way of a, the most defining moment of her husband's presidency, but I, I don't really blame her. At that point, no, it was I mean, Edith's presidency, and if someone is coming over and is not respectful of the position and authority that she holds, good for her. See, I, I disagree with that a little, only because if I were... And I don't know what these demeaning comments were. I think it would depend on the degree of severity but i and maybe i'm wrong maybe i i would let my ego take control but i i think i would be able to in in defense of my overall legacy and one of my biggest goals kind of put that behind me and and just swallow it as if the person was coming to argue on behalf of it now i don't know how much control this person had over whether or not the league of nations happened and yeah in edith's defense it seems unlikely that the congress would have gotten on board anyway just because you know you have the same political divides that you see today but it certainly wouldn't have hurt to have a foreign leader come in and explain why this international congress would be a good thing to prevent future conflicts like this so i mean edith she really held her ground on this and stood firm and you know she she really affected policy for the last year and a half of her husband's presidency and even after he left office she continued to screen the visitors and the activities of her husband uh, until his death in 1924. And beyond that, she devoted the rest of her life to managing his legacy. 
She had the right, the literary rights to all of his her husband's papers. Um, this was a time before presidential papers were viewed as public documents. She denied access to people whose motives she didn't trust, and she granted access to people that proved that they were loyal to her. Uh, she also had full script control of the 1944 film biography Wilson, including the depiction of herself, played by the actress Geraldine Fitzgerald. And she, Edith played a prominent role in future administrations beyond hers. She was in close contact with a lot of her successors, and she was even seated next to Eleanor Roosevelt when President Franklin Roosevelt delivered his 1941 Declaration of War to Congress, which was when the U.S. entered into World War II. She was like, Eleanor, wait till he's incapacitated and just take shit over. She's like, I've been there. Here's what you do. <laughs> You're going to be the second female president of the United States and no one's going to realize it. To be fair, FDR had his own health issues, but yeah, I haven't researched Eleanor very much, but I would suspect that she had a little bit more reserve in sticking to the first lady roles than maybe Edith had herself. Sure. Uh, Edith lived to the age of 89. She passed away in December of 1961, the same day that she was supposed to be the guest of honor at the dedication ceremony for the Woodrow Wilson Bridge across the Potomac River on what would have been her husband's 105th birthday. Edith's role as the First Lady, or as she called herself, the Presidential Steward, has been pretty hotly debated since she left office. Uh, 1921, which was the year that they left office, uh, Wilson's chief of staff, Joe Tamalti, wrote, quote, No public man ever had a more devoted helpmate and no wife a husband more dependent on her system- sympathetic understanding of his problems. Mrs. Wilson's strong physical constitution, combined with strength of character and purpose, has sustained her under a strain which must have wrecked most women. End quote. Good old Joe <laughs> Tamalti really embracing girl power there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, but it sounds like he had a positive view of her. Um. Yeah, I think, I mean, the way I'm interpreting that, it's it's a lot of like, you know, she really benefited from the fact that her husband couldn't care for himself or took advantage of that. But also, sure. he's pretty lucky that he had a strong woman to care for him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have yeah. been the president. So th- there's a little bit of both there. And honestly, that's probably a pretty gender progressive stance for that time period. Yeah, Other scholars have written about Edith saying that she underestimated her own role in her husband's presidency. While she may not have made critical decisions, she definitely influenced both domestic and international policy just in her role as the presidential gatekeeper. She was essentially the nation's chief executive until her husband's second term concluded. And there was a Republican senator at the time who said, the presidentress who had fulfilled the dream of suffragettes by changing her title from first lady to acting first man. There you go. (laughs) But it's worth noting that until her death, the former first lady insisted that she never assumed the full power of the presidency. I don't believe it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I am having trouble trying to decide what position I want to take as much as I want to make her the bad guy, just because it seems to be the devil's advocate point of view. I, I, it's hard to ignore some of these scholar writings, that, uh, which are clear. I mean, to me at least, as I read them, don't indicate, uh, I don't know, a distaste. Don't indicate a lot of harsh feelings towards her actions. I, I mean, most of them indicate a little bit of an almost reverence for her strength and, and you know, ability to hold the show down. 
while it would have been a new perspective to see a woman take initiative like that and to really you know run the executive branch yeah she may have denied it herself but there's no way that she was not impacting policy and if she was the one who told wilson not to step down and to maintain the power of the presidency with her help she was absolutely acting in that role and that's not something that people would have really fully understood or been comfortable with especially if they're being insincere to the public and to the press and to congress about how bad his health situation really was yeah do do you think that she didn't do you think that she insisted that she didn't have those those influences and effects um, purely out of humility, her own humility, or, or out of a, a kind of more strategic, you know, didn't want to let the cat out of the bag front? It's probably definitely some strategic. How could it not be? You know, sure. she, she was very careful about maintaining the legacy of her husband. And to say that he, for her to come out and say that he was unable to handle the duties of the job and she had to do it for him, number one, would have really hurt his standing in history as being a really strong and combative president, a president during a time of war, but also would have made her look bad too. And just that she took on duties and roles that are not hers to take as the first lady. She was not elected by the American people. They elected Woodrow Wilson and his vice president to take over those duties in the, in the event that he's unable to do them. So I, I think it's a little bit of both, you know, she, she came from sort of humble beginnings. So she may not have really believed that she was impacting policy in the way that she was. But at the same time, she very much was the acting chief yeah. of the executive branch. I mean, for sure, it's it's almost like saying the conglomeration of media doesn't have an effect on public opinion. Like, she was the gatekeeper of information. Even if you don't make a single decision, deciding what gets through to the other side is is a decision. It's true. So should we move on to our next segment? The quiz. We'll be right back. All right, now it's time for the quiz. We'd like to end each episode with a quiz pertaining to that episode's topic to see how much we've learned and also to give you a chance to flex your history muscle a little bit. So here we go. Bring it on. First Lady Trivia. So, um, to start off with something more relevant to the topics we talked about today, uh, you mentioned that one of the duties of the First Lady is to act as hostess of the White House. Of course, no gathering is complete without a fine set of china on which to serve your meal. Who was the First Lady, who was the first First Lady, I should say, to use American-made china? Ooh, I have no idea, but I'm going to make a guess because I believe they still use Lincoln's China at a lot of the formal dinners at the White House. So I'm going to go with Mary Todd Lincoln. Mary Todd Lincoln. That is incorrect. The correct answer is Edith Wilson. Ah, man, I should have known that. That was one of the harder ones. I, I kind of wanted to throw you a curveball there since we just spent an hour talking about her. Yeah, you would think that I, you know, studied her a little bit or something. Yeah, you can't study everything. All what right, else you got second, for me? second question. 
give you a, an easier one, hopefully. You actually mentioned this this individual during... Actually, you mentioned all three of them at, at some point, but um, only one first lady has been elected to public office. Name the first lady and the position she was elected to. Hillary Rodham Clinton, U.S. Senator from New York. There you go. See, I didn't even have from New York. I just had U.S. Senate. Uh, I wouldn't points. be surprised if we have... Uh, more future first ladies that run for public office in the near future. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's this question. I mean, Michelle Obama has been rumored already. I don't know that we're going to see a Melania Trump someday, <laughs> but who knows? Oh, and, I mean, as you see more women getting elected into office, it, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. Yeah. The first ladies themselves are becoming public figures and especially affecting policy. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. And our third and final question, a little bit of a shot in the dark here, but use your best guess. Who was the first first lady to wear pants in public? Oh, shoot. I actually read this. And like all of me wants to say it's also Hillary Clinton, but like she's just famous for the pantsuits. Was it Jackie O? It was not. Nancy oh. Reagan. Oh, that was going to be my next guess. <laughs> was it? <laughs> I yeah, was yeah, making mental was notes as her. you mentioned I mean, them. Jackie O was too much for fashion. She was wearing dresses and stuff. So I just figured she was the fashionista of the group. So maybe she was. But yeah. Nancy Reagan makes sense. It's a good guess. Close. All right. Well, that's been our show today. So hope you learned a little bit about Edith Wilson, the United States' first female president. And come back for some more History's B-Siders. Thank you guys for listening. History's B-Side is an independent, listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service and follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History's B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcast at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your hosts, Matt Melito and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side.